Morning, Mercy House. Uh, just an announcement with this sign here. The first and second graders are going to be released to go downstairs. Look at them. Thanks, David. It's my brother-in-law. Well, good morning. We are super glad that you're here with us this morning. There's a lot going on, uh, but I want to welcome you. My name is Tommy Moore. I'm the director of teaching and ministry here at Mercy House. If this is the first time that you're here, I just want to say welcome. Uh, Merry Christmas. We're glad that you're with us. We're glad that you're here worshiping with us this morning. Uh, we're on the second to last sermon in this sermon series. It's been a long road home, uh, and we're wrapping up the Songs of Ascent. So we're on Psalm 133 this morning. And this morning, we have a short psalm. It's just three verses, uh, but there's still a lot to actually pull out of these verses. So I'm going to jump right in. To give us some context to help us kind of understand what's happening here, uh, there's actually really not uh, a lot that we know about the historical moment of, uh, of writing this psalm. Uh, we're not really given a lot of details in these three verses that would help us place this in an exact spot in Israel's history, uh, but we do know that it's credited to King David, one of the four uh, songs of a sense that he himself wrote, but really that's about it. Uh, the song then, I think that what we can take from that is that it's not tied to any critical moment uh, in Israel's history. It's not elaborating with some sort of theological hindsight, uh, something specific that God had done or an experience that Israel had. But David really is making a simple observation. He, he's using some unique imagery to help convey that, that point. Uh, but here we go, just starting in verse 1. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. David is grabbing the attention of Israel here and telling them to behold. And now most people, I think, would cruise on after reading that word, but that little word there, behold, really is one of those that should always slow you down as you're reading your Bible. The, the word behold is used over 1,500 times in the Bible, and we see it actually quite a bit. Uh, the Hebrew word hine in the Old Testament and the Greek word idu in the New Testament, it means a lot more than just look here or see this. It's, it's not like a filler word. It's a word that really doesn't have any single perfect English equivalent to capture its meaning. But really what it's trying to communicate is pay very close attention to what I'm about to say because it's really, really, really important. Every time it's used, that's what it's trying to convey to you. It's a word that almost every single author in the Bible has used uh, really to help snap people to attention and encourage them to, to really focus in on what they're about to say. I want to share with you some of the places where you see this word being used. I want you to take special note of the significance of what comes afterward, what the author is trying to draw your attention to. The first one you might have already been reading and hearing during Advent. This is in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. It says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, so there's that word there, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And God is saying here, hey, focus with me, pay close attention. I'm going to give you a sign. And when you see a virgin conceive and bear a son, his birth is going to mark the reality uh, that my plan to unite myself with my people is coming into fruition. Because Emmanuel, we know, means God with us. Now, that's worthy of drawing some attention to. A jump ahead, as, as, as we read in the Gospel of Luke, we see an angel appearing before a group of shepherds saying this in Luke chapter 2, verse 10 and 11. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, there's that word again, behold. So this means focus in here, pay attention. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. 
For unto you is, a, is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So in other words, the angel is saying, don't be terrified, but pay very close attention to what I'm about to tell you. I am bringing you incredible news right now that will impact the entire world. That tonight, the long-awaited Messiah and Savior of the world has been born. Like, that's some newsworthy, uh, attention-grabbing content right there. And as Jesus begins his ministry later on in his life, he runs into John the Baptist in the beginning of the Gospel of John. This is in John chapter 1, verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus, this is John the Baptist, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, there's that word again, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And John's saying, hey, everyone, drop what you're doing for a second. Like, get off your phone for just a minute and focus in right here. This, the person that you're seeing, this here Jesus is the sacrificial lamb that will die the death to be a propitiation, a ransom for our sins and take away all the sins of the world. Again, attention-worthy information. And then at the end of the Bible, we see in Revelation, Jesus using this very word himself. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, behold, pay attention, look right here. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Jesus himself is saying, hey, pay attention here. I am standing here knocking on the door of your life. And if you hear me knocking, if you open that door, I will come in and we will experience complete reconciliation with one another. And we will enjoy and, and delight in perfect fellowship forever. And that's some good news. Mercy House, when you see the word behold as you're reading your Bible, whether it's in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, you ought to slow down and really focus in on what's being communicated after that because it's usually an indicator of some really good news that's worth paying very close attention to. So if we know that, if the, if the word behold is kind of rolling out the red carpet, then what is David pointing to right now that's so worth our attention? What's kind of so riled up that he's kind of grabbing us by the shoulders and he's telling us to make sure that we hear what he has to say? Well, look again at verse 1. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Okay, David, I think that seems a little anticlimactic at first glance. And David is saying, hey, focus here for a minute, Israel. It's good and pleasant when brothers are getting along, <laughs> when brothers live harmoniously together. There's actually a lot more here than meets the eye. I think more broadly, David is pointing out uh, that when a family experiences unity, when, when a family is able to interact in healthy and sweet ways together, when a family actually feels like a family, when a family is brought together and experiences fellowship and mutual love and mutual respect, living selflessly for the good of one another, and, and even feeling that sense of camaraderie together, like that is a good and pleasant thing which I, I think we can all agree on. I, I don't think I, I have to argue too hard that when a family is experiencing unity, that it's a good and pleasant thing. And Christmas time is always my favorite time of the year. It, it always has been. And, and there's a lot of reasons why I love Christmas, but one of the things that I experienced an extra dose of during the holidays as I was growing up was unity in our family. I mean, it, it was the one time a year that I remember my immediate and extended family would, would all come together. We didn't do it other times of the year. 
It remains to this day the, the one time a year that we get to see my sister and my brother-in-law who, who live pretty far away from us. It's a time that's just filled with sitting around a table. We're sharing food. We're watching Star Wars. We're playing board games, and we're just singing songs, and, and we're just kind of like loving on each other during this special and unique season of the year. I know not everyone has that experience, but that's what it's been for me. And it's not perfect. We've definitely had our fair share of holiday drama through the years. But what I've experienced consistently over time during this time of year is a sense of togetherness, of, of fellowship, of love for one another, of thankfulness for those who are in my biological family. I've experienced some unity. And you know what? It's good. It's pleasant. It's a blessing. And part of what David is doing here is reminding us to actually appreciate it if we've been blessed by it. But David isn't just talking about biological families here. I hope that you, you've realized as, you, as you've gone through this series with us that there is a strong sense of community and family that the people of Israel had all together. And they did not view themselves uh, simply as an independent, sovereign state that was unified by a flag. They viewed themselves as brothers and sisters in the family of God. And it wasn't just the food that they ate, the songs that they sang, the clothes that they wore, or the language that they spoke, or even the blood inside of their veins. But what united them was their identity as God's special and chosen people. With God as their father, it made them brothers and sisters with one another. For us as Christians, we also have been adopted into this same family. In one of the first sermons in the series, we looked at how outside of Christ, we are wandering hopelessly without a home. And, and our sin has eternally separated us from God. It's created a deep and wide chasm that no amount of self-righteous good works or kindness or behavior modification would be able to bridge. But in Christ, through his birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection, he has made it possible for those of us who want to be reconciled back with God to actually be able to share that meal that we see being talked about in Revelation chapter 3. And the passage for this that we, we use was Ephesians chapter 2. I'm just going to read some excerpts from it here, starting in verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, who uh, sorry, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. What Paul is getting at here is that there are practical and corporate ramifications to your experience of salvation as a Christian. He's talking about those of us who, who, have, who have received God's grace and have decided to follow Jesus, uh, that we all have access in one spirit, the Holy Spirit, to God the Father. He then further makes a point in verse 19 that those of us who have become Christians uh, and are, are not continuing to float around as wandering sojourners without a home. No, we become citizens and saints alongside the others in the household of God. So when you look at that, what it's saying is we're united in one spirit together under the protection and care of our, our Father, God, as fellow members of the household of God. Like, that's family, that's a family. When you become a Christian, you are adopted into the family of God. And Paul drills down on this from a different angle, a little more ex explicitly in his letter to the Galatians. 
And Galatians chapter 3 says, For in Christ you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have, to, have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Mercy has the beautiful thing that God has built and is continuing to build. But by bringing in people from all walks of life, all uh, ethnicities and all cultures, regardless of your, your social or your economic class, regardless of your education or your vocation, and as a father making us all one family through faith is the church. That is the church. And what I mean by the church here is the universal capital C church that includes all believers, all followers of Christ throughout the entire world. But there is also a local little C church that allows us to engage as members of the big C church in a very practical local way. Does that make sense? We talk about big C church and little C church. One of the things that you'll notice as you read these passages about being brought into God's family upon salvation is that it's not an optional thing. Uh, membership into this big C church is a significant part of what it actually theologically means to be a Christian. And being part of, of, of the universal body believers is not something that you do. It's not something that you can opt out of either. Any more than a baby can opt out of being part of a family when they're born into that family. So as Christians, we've experienced new birth as represented by our baptism, which we all got to participate in last week, watching Lila and Amelia get dunked on the water, be brought out, and they were birthed into the family of God, the church. Now here's why all of this is really important. The question for the Christian then is not, should I become a member of the church? As a Christian, by definition, you are a member of the church. But the question for you, if you are a Christian, is how will you engage as a member of the church? And just like the biological families that we've been born into, engagement and participation in the family are independent of membership. A family member who resents their family, who wants nothing to do with their family, maybe who sees their family sparingly, who maybe speaks poorly of their family, has no interest in being part of the family, who doesn't experience any unity with their family, is no less a member of that family. And look, I, I don't want to minimize the fact that some of us might have experienced significant hurt and pain in the context of our biological families, or maybe even our spiritual families. That some of us not only have experienced disunity in our families, but significant uh, unhealthiness and even trauma. But nevertheless, even though there might be legitimate reasons for why we don't want to be a part of our families, why we don't want to engage with our families, we are still members of our families. And David is saying that unity in a family is good and pleasant, which means that we ought to enjoy it and appreciate it for the blessing that it is when we have it, but also that we ought to strive for it as a family. Like, hashtag church goals should be hashtag unity. That's the mind that we should have when we're trying to approach church. Well, if that's true, then what are we striving for? Like, what, what is the fruit of having unity? And how do we know if we actually have unity? And David uses two images to communicate what unity looks like and why it's so good and it's so pleasant. And the first one is a bit strange, I'll be honest. Look at verse 2. 
It is like the precious oil on the beard, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. I'm going to be honest. The imagery is pretty much completely lost on us today. Right? There's no scenario where we'd see oil running down a beard and spilling onto clothing as being a beautiful and pleasant thing. It's actually kind of gross. It stresses me out as I think about it. If you're like eating or cooking and you get oil on your shirt, you're never like, oh, wow, this is such a beautiful and pleasant thing. What a precious moment I'm having right now. No. And so we have to dive a little bit into the cultural context real quickly to just extrapolate some of the significance here. First, we need to remember that oil is a precious commodity. It's, it's a basic and central resource for life in 1000 B.C., Oil was also often laced with flowers and herbs and spices, making it fragrant. It was used like a perfume. And in a time without Febreze or deodorant, the sprinkling of oil literally did make life more pleasant, at least to the nose. But in the image, the oil is not used sparingly. It's not a dab here and a dab there. It's literally dripping down, not portion, not ration, but in abundance, even spilling onto the robes. I think one of the things we can pull from this mercy house is that unity is a precious and rare commodity. It's, it's not something to be taken for granted, and it's pleasant. Unity in a family can make the foul smells of life more bearable and more manageable. And when we experience unity as a family, we experience love and kindness and mercy toward one another in abundance. It's not portioned. It's not done begrudgingly. When we're united in fellowship with one another, it brings joy. It becomes a delight to serve and to sacrifice for one another. And when there's a healthy unity in a family, it, it just overflows outside of the family. It blesses our neighbors. It blesses our communities. Like when there is unity, you, you can't contain the fruit that is born out of a family that is, that is united in unity. It's, it's just abundantly overflowing. And this is how Israel would have understood these lyrics as they sang them. But as you look closer, who is Aaron and what's so awesome about his beard, right? It seems like a random name drop. Well, Aaron was Moses' brother, and as a Levite, he was a priest for the people of God. His role was to be an intermediary between God's people and God himself. And so he facilitated the religious disciplines as they were established by God, and he was in part responsible for the spiritual welfare of all of Israel. And so name-dropping him here, it pivots the image to a, a more spiritual space. See, oil played an important role for Israel, not just because it was precious and valuable as a resource, but because it was used spiritually as well. And look at this passage out of Exodus where God is, is talking to Moses and describing the use of holy anointing oil, starting in verse 22. The Lord said to Moses, Take the finest spices of liquid myrrh, 500 shekels, and of sweet-smelling cinnamon, half as much, that is 250, and 250 of aromatic cane, and 500 of cassia, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and a hin of olive oil. And you shall make of these a sacred anointing oil, blended as by the perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil. With it, you shall anoint the tent of meeting, and the ark of testimony, and the table, and all of its utensils, and the lampstand, and, and its utensils, and the altar of incense, and the altar of burnt offering, with all its utensils, and the basin, and its stand. You shall consecrate them, that they may be most holy. Whatever touches them will become holy. You shall anoint Aaron and his sons, and consecrate them 
that they may serve me as priests. And you shall say to the people of Israel, this shall be my holy anointing oil throughout your generations. God gives them this recipe for this special oil that is to be used to help, to help anoint things or, or to mark things. And, 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 and you're, they're being marked as holy and set apart from other things. The oil itself is not magical. And God is not providing a recipe for like a magic potion here that we can recreate and do special things with. It's just olive oil with some spices that God happens to really like, I imagine. And we talked about this last week when we talked about the Ark of the Covenant, how the Ark itself is not magical or filled with cosmic power, but it was a symbol and a reminder to God's people of God's provision, His power, and His promises. Well, this anointing oil is very similar. It's a symbol used to communicate the consecrating power of God, God's ability to make things holy simply with His touch. And how unlike water that might just dry off, oil permeates. You can't wash it out, at least not easily, which in the case of symbolizing God's holiness is a very good thing. So not only is unity in God's family precious and rare, not only is it pleasant, not only does it cause abundant selfless interactions overflowing out of the family, unity is a result of spiritual health. Unity in God's family includes spiritual blessing that permeates deep inside of its members, not just pleasant feelings and some nice thoughts to wonder, or just surface-level pleasantries that we share with one another. A church family that is experiencing unity is experiencing it through the genuine heart-level worship of God. In real heart-level transformation centered on the gospel. And it's engaging in real heart-level conversations and relationships with one another. I think this is important, uh, an important way to understand biblical unity. Because it, it's not just the nice, pleasant emotions that come with having an organization filled with acquaintances. Now, that's not the unity the Bible's talking about. What I think David is getting at, and I think what we need to hold to, is that true biblical unity is not just the absence of division. Uh, biblical unity is not just the absence of anger or hurtful words. The unity that David is talking about is not just a group of people who get along pretty nicely. If there is not a collective worship and praise of God, if there is not a collective sense of reliance on God for gospel transformation in our lives, if, there's, if there isn't genuine, meaningful relationships filled with transparency and accountability and compassion for one another, I, I don't care how smoothly or how pleasantly a church business meeting goes, that is not biblical unity. Now, hopefully, this beard oil verse makes more sense to you now. Hopefully you see why David used this illustration of oil, of oil to communicate the goodness, the, the preciousness of unity within the family of God. But there's more. And it's, it's not just uh, like holy oil dripping down a beard. Look at verse 3. It says, It is like the dew of, Her of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. David pivots from his love of oil to an image that's, I think, significantly more relatable to us, and that is the dew that gathers around Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is uh, standing 9,000 feet above sea level. It's a sizable mountain. And there are snow-covered caps, and there's lots of ice up there, and that ice would melt, and it would feed into the Jordan River. It's actually one of the largest sources of water for the Jordan River. And that water is refreshing, 
It's nourishing. It's bringing life to everything that is around it. Mercy House, this is how gatherings of God's people ought to feel. When there is unity in the family of God, gatherings should bring refreshment to our souls. It should be nourishing to our minds and also our hearts. And it should be a breath of fresh air uh, and, and fills us with life and with energy and excitement to actually go out of this place. And then, and then to go just like crush the world this week, like just sending us out. And that, that's the hope for what it feels like, what unity as you experience it here at Mercy House does for you. The way that this happens is through the spiritual health associated with unity that we just talked about. So coming to a church gathering and having it actually be refreshing is only true if you're able to experience true worship, if you're able to experience true gospel transformation, if you have actual meaningful relationships here in this church. Otherwise, coming to church is like coming to an awkward family gathering where you can only do so much surface-level conversation before you're just looking at your watch and trying to see when you can leave. Biblical unity in the context of God's family isn't easy. (laughs) It isn't even necessarily natural. And I think that's part of the reason why David writes this song for Israel. It's to help them realize the sweet treasure that is unity when they have it. Because the reality is that Israel didn't always experience precious, good, pleasant, spiritually nourishing, soul-refreshing unity that he's singing about here. Israel uh, eventually would be scattered throughout all of the nations. And so the practical logistics of unity, being together in one space, worshiping and praying and fellowshipping, was just not a possibility. Israel also went through seasons of great division, and David himself experienced inner turmoil and drama within his kingdom as a result of sinfulness in himself and other people. So when David talks about unity, it's, it's not like this is something that Israel always experienced. Here's a very brief list of things, some of the things that David had experienced within the context of his kingdom, within the context of his community. He was, he was despised and criticized by his own family. He was accused of treason and treachery by those within his kingdom. He lived for many years as a fugitive, a wanted man in his own kingdom. He had family, home, friends, and career taken from him by people in his kingdom. He was accepted as the king only reluctantly by the people in his kingdom. He was openly criticized and despised by his own wife. He endured great conflict and problems among his own children. He suffered a coup that was staged by his own son, which was followed up by a civil war in his kingdom. He was openly despised, often, and criticized by many of the people within his kingdom. See, David experienced enough disunity to be able to appreciate unity when it was there. But despite all of the disunity that Israel had experienced through the years, unity was still something that was treasured, and it was something that was sought after. It's in part why they committed themselves to these pilgrimages back to Jerusalem, Because despite their geographical distance from their brothers and sisters in God's family, they made the trek multiple times a year at great cost to themselves, as we've covered in other sermons in this sermon series, in order to develop and experience unity all together. This isn't much different for us today. And there's plenty of reasons why unity continues to be difficult for us as a local gathering of God's family here at Mercy House. I'm going to give you three reasons. I'm sure there are a lot more, but I think that this can be a helpful place to start. And these challenges are no different from what Israel dealt with. The challenges are logistics, sinfulness, 
and differences. Logistics, sinfulness, and differences. Logistics can make it practically difficult to experience unity with other members inside this church family. Think about it. Every experience of unity requires some sort of commitment of time and energy. You can't experience true unity with your brothers and sisters in isolation. I think if nothing else, COVID has taught us that there is unique value and blessing in meeting with people face-to-face. And sure, Zoom can be convenient, but no one, I think, in their right mind is permanently trading their in-person friendships for virtual ones. Like, no one is like, wow, FaceTime is just so awesome. I don't think I'm ever going to hang out with a person in real life ever again. I don't think anybody's saying that. Experiencing unity, then, requires intentionality and sacrifice, whether that's making plans to come to church on a Sunday morning or setting aside time to be a part of a church summit or committing to a family group, or, or, or to a discipleship group. Even meeting one-on-one with another person can be hard, especially with all of our other responsibilities and everything else that we need to get done. Not even considering what our energy level is, and how tired and exhausted we might be, or maybe how far away we live. Maybe we don't have a car. Maybe we don't have child care. Like, the list goes on and on. But it's not just logistics that can make it hard to experience unity. Once we do intentionally and sacrificially make time and effort to gather, there's our sin (laughs) and and, and the sin of others that can make unity difficult. And we as Christians are washed completely clean from our sin. Like Our sin is no longer counted against us. It, It does not condemn us, but it does not mean that we are immediately sinless. And while sin has lost its power over us both to shame us and to enslave us on this side of eternity, before God completes his work in us to fully glorify us, the potential for sin is still lurking at every corner as we spend time together. That's what happens when you put a bunch of broken, misfit people together in a room. Like, there is bound to be tension and challenge. And it doesn't always result in sin, but the temptation is there. All of our sensitive insecurities, all all of our insensitive comments, our pride that makes us think that we know what's right or what's best all the time, our anger that can erupt in hurtful and incendiary attacks on one another, our bitterness and resentment which can take shape in passive aggressiveness or just plain coldness toward one another, our selfishness, our greed, our desire for power and control, our, our opposition to authority. I mean, I could go on and on with reasons for why sin makes unity difficult, but I think you get the idea. Unity is difficult to experience and realize because of the logistics and the commitment required, uh, because of the sinfulness of ourselves and of others, and lastly, because of the differences within God's family. What I mean here is that we are all very different. God has made us beautifully unique to bear different facets of God's image. But such diversity can make it sometimes difficult to experience unity. It's not naturally intuitive for someone to be able to see different perspectives of other people. But God works through different members of his body in different ways, with different giftings, with different passions, even having different sensitivities not being on the same page might just mean that you have a different page and that you don't need to be on the same page, which can make unity hard. Not impossible, but hard. See, the more that you think about it, unity within a church, uh, within a church family is actually miraculous. 
Like you've got broken, sinful people who are called to make selfless sacrifices of their time and energy to gather together who are oftentimes radically different in how they perceive the world around them. When you think of it that way, it's actually honestly surprising that anything can ever get done in the context of a church family, let alone experiencing this sweet, precious, soul-refreshing unity together. But just because it's hard doesn't mean we shouldn't strive to do it. As Paul is exhorting the local gathering of God's family members in the city of Ephesus, he he not only helps them understand that faith in Jesus means membership into this family, which we saw earlier in Ephesians 2, but look at what he says about unity within the family in chapter 4, starting in verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. If you want to know how to do unity as members of God's family in the context of the local church, this is how you do it. And Paul is urging them in verse 1 to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you have been called, which means, Christian, be who you are. Uh, You are made pure by the blood of Jesus. You are righteous without sin. So walk and conduct yourself according to that reality. Be who you are. And what does this look like? Look at verse 2. Paul says, Paul says to walk with all humility, with gentleness, with patience, and bearing with one another in love. And this single verse by itself deserves its own sermon. But, but here's the, the recipe for unity in the face of the challenges of logistics and sinfulness and differences. Humility, gentleness, patience, and love. As Christians, when we engage with others in the body, we humbly are counting others more important than ourselves. This allows us to sacrifice our time and to serve without our pride getting in the way. We are gentle. We're being mindful of our interactions with the words that we're using to communicate, being sensitive to where people are at. We are patient with our brothers and sisters when they're in the process of being sanctified in their sin while we are being sanctified in our own. And we engage in love, genuinely caring for the good of one another, willing to bear one another's burdens without grumbling. We don't just do these things to do them. Verse 3 says that, quote, uh, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So there's an eagerness that we ought to have for unity. And it's not just an eagerness to have it, but to maintain it, which translation, unity, is not automatic. It cannot be set on cruise control. Unity is not like the horizontal escalator that you ride at the airport that you just step on. It takes you from point A to point B. And so similarly, unity isn't experienced by just showing up on a Sunday and, and, and with the expectation to, to kind of be effortlessly floated along in unity with the rest of the church. It is maintained by engaging with others within the family of God, within the church family. And so listen, this is why you'll hear us encouraging you to become members of the local church. 
And even if you're a member of the, B, uh, the big C church, when you become a Christian, one of the ways that you practically experience unity is by engaging in the local little C church. And this isn't where I just pitch our next new members class. Like You can go to FBC, you can go up the road to College Church or to Maple Ridge, but wherever you decide to land, jump in and be an active and engaged member of that church. Why? So you can experience this unity that David is singing about. So you can contribute to the unity. So you can be refreshed and blessed by the unity. But you need to know that unity and fellowship and family are not passively experienced in the church. I know a lot of you, as you sit here, are, are kind of floating around right now. You might be coming on a Sunday morning worship with us. You might even be doing a DG or serving downstairs. But here's my exhortation to you. If you've been coming here for months and, and, you, and you like what you see, then join the church. Become a member of the church. If you're a Christian and you're a member of the, of the universal, uh, universal church, then I want to invite you to commit yourself to this covenant community and engage as a member with your brothers and sisters here at Mercy House. If you want to do that, there's a little card on your chair. You can write your name, your email, and just let us know, and we can get you more information on how to do that. What I'm trying to communicate is that membership in a local church is how we experience the fullness of biblical unity as it's communicated in Scripture and as it's designed by God. As one, as one commentator put it, there are no single children in the family of God. We are not meant to do Christian faith alone. And I hope that you see this psalm as singing about the goodness and the, the pleasantness of unity amongst God's family of believers. And as you see that, that you would have some holy FOMO, that you have some fear of missing out and, and answer the invitation to become a member of a church. So I want to end this morning with just the second half of the last verse. Look at Psalm 133, verse 3. The last sentence. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. The unity that David is speaking of, and speaking so highly of, this precious and good thing that, that's rare but life-giving, that, that's worth seeking, worth maintaining, it is a blessing which means that it is a gift from God. It's something that is good for us. It leads to life. You might be wondering, why is unity such a big deal? Well, because unity among the members of God's family reflects the unity that God has in himself and that we have with him. One of the clearest places that we see this is in John chapter 17, verses 20 and 23. This is Jesus praying to the Father. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, and they, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, you in me, that they may become that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Man, like Jesus is praying that we would experience the same unity that he is experiencing with the Father. 
Like God cares so much about unity because it is the result of right relationship. It's the true fellowship as God has designed true fellowship to be experienced. And to have unity with God means that we've actually been reconciled back to God. You can't have unity without reconciliation. And to have unity is, is so beautiful here. Like Jesus is praying this beautiful prayer. It's a vocalization of, of a desire of Jesus' to have us brought into perfect fellowship that Jesus has with his own Father through the Spirit. So practically, unity with God enables unity amongst one another. Tony Merida puts it like this. He says, fellowship with God and fellowship with one another go together. To be in right relationship with God means you're in right relationship with God's people. The closer we draw to other believers, the closer we draw to God. Great blessings await those who make every effort to dwell in unity. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he, he took the bread and broke it, saying, this is my body, which has been given to you. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. Earlier in the sermon, we looked at a verse, Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, where it says, behold, this is Jesus talking, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Communion is the meal that we're invited to come and eat with Jesus. It, it represents complete reconciliation with God, perfect fellowship with him. It's the meal that we also share with one another every Sunday morning as brothers and sisters who have been united together by the blood of Christ. It's an opportunity to be connected across so many different identities and cultures and backgrounds and experiences. The reality of communion is that we all, no matter who we are, where we've come from, we need to eat and we need to drink. And brothers and sisters, there is no, more, no meal that is more joyful to share or more critical to our eternal health than the bread and the cup that we share during communion. And so Mercy House, for those of us who are members of the household of God, as brothers and sisters who have been united by the blood of Christ, let us seek to dwell, to live in unity with one another, knowing that it isn't easy. That there's going to be logistics and sin and differences that we have that are going to make it really difficult. But nonetheless, being eager to maintain it. And let's begin by sharing this meal together and then worshiping our Father together. Let's pray. God, you are our Father. You have brought us together into this household and have, you have made us one people. We thank you, God, that you have invited us to become one in you. That our goal is not just unity with one another, but as it reflects the unity that we have with you, which is made possible by your Son. God, I pray for those in this room who don't have unity with you, that you would do the work in their hearts, allow them to receive you by faith and experience reconciliation, which leads to unity with you and then produces unity with one another, God. And I pray for those who 
are not a committed member to a covenant community, that you would allow them to take that step, not just to put their name on a piece of paper, but so that they can experience true unity and fellowship as you have designed it to be experienced. Lord, thank you for those in this body who have made that commitment. God, we confess that sometimes it is hard to experience unity. And we pray, God, that you would sanctify us and grow us, that you would allow us to have compassion for one another, that you would allow us to experience humility and gentleness with one another, and that you would allow us as a church here in Amherst, Massachusetts, to dwell in unity. Father, we're thankful for the unity we have with you, and as we take communion, Lord, we are just so thankful for this meal that represents reconciliation with you. We love you, God, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.